You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Judges chapter 6, continuing through the book, we come now to one of the major judges in the book, Gideon. Uh, Gideon has over 100 verses that are assigned to him because uh, the Lord just does amazing things in and through his life, and it's just, a, it's just a really cool story. It's just a really encouraging story that we get to dive into tonight. We're only going to begin the story. We're only looking at one chapter tonight. Of course, it is 40 verses, so it uh, should take plenty of time. But as we do this, I just want you guys to know that this chapter is really written to encourage you. It's written from God's heart to yours. And I love the heart of God in this chapter. He really wants you to be built up. He really wants you to be encouraged as you study this chapter tonight. I I know that because of just the, the, there's so much encouragement in here. There's so much that that I can relate to as a human being, uh, which tells me that you're going to be able to relate to this chapter as a human being as well. And you guys all know that the book of Judges, it's just a great picture of humanity, the human soul, how human, in, how human beings in our flesh nature, we struggle with sin. And we go through this cycle where we give ourselves, we, we, we begin to make compromises, we begin to uh, you know, open ourselves up to things that are not good for us, they're not edifying, they're not building us up. And in turn, we begin to feed the flesh, and the next thing you know, we're, we, we've kind of turned our backs on the Lord, and we're not seeking the Lord. We left our first love. And, and this is this, a story of what can happen when we do that, but it's also a story of how God, in His grace and His mercy and His love, He keeps stepping in continually to rescue His people. Even when they don't fully repent, even when they're just crying out because they're miserable, God still loves them so much, he just, he can't stand it. He has to get in there and get in their lives and, and rescue them. And I just love that about our God. And, and, and I want you to be encouraged that, that we serve a God who is all about deliverance. He's all about rescue. He's all about being there for us in, 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 in a way that we really need him to be. You know, because sometimes we have this idea in our minds of what God should do. (laughs) Here's what you ought to do, God, to rescue me. But you know what? God always does exactly what is needed, and no more, and never any less. And that's what we see tonight in the the chapter before us. So pick it up. We're going to have five different sections in the chapter. Each section, I've broken it down into its separate point. And so point number one is just the setting of the story. Check it out with me in verse 1. It says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed excuse me, against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. And so it was whenever Israel had sown the Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. And then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. 
For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. Verse 6, So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Let's pause here for a moment. Here in these first six verses, we've got the setting for the chapter. Now, after 40 years of peace, remember, uh, at the end of chapter 5, it says that the land had rest for 40 years. So that was under Deborah. She brought in this period of peace and rest in the land. And the Israelites, though, they begin again to drift away. Now, we've talked about this before. Why did they drift away? Well, it was because that external restraint was taken away. And so, you know, when, when no one was there that was watching them and leading them and making sure they were doing what they were supposed to do, they kind of just reverted back to their natural form, <laughs> their nature, their human sinful nature. And they began to just kind of do what they thought was right in their own eyes. Guys, we are living in a time when this is becoming dangerous. The, 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 the church is becoming anemic in the sense that we no longer are fighting off and resisting sin. The society is infiltrating us. And instead of us making a stand for what's truth, man, the church doesn't really know what's true anymore because they've, they've lost their, their supreme uh, view of Scripture. They've lost their heart for, for the Bible and teaching of God's truth in a simple way. And because of that, they've grown anemic and now they're blending in with society. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a dangerous time that we're living in as far as spiritually speaking within the church. And, and oftentimes what we have is we have people that are following an external form of religion. And so when they're at church... You know, they're going to say and do the things that church people do because they're religious. But there's a vacuum in their relationship. They don't know how to relate to God. And, and, and it's affecting them. It's making them weak. And so when they're not at church, when they're not in this, when this external form is not in their lives, maybe it's their parents that are making them go to church. Maybe it's the, you know, the, 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 the being around Christian people that causes them to act right. Whatever it is, when that's gone, when that external restraint is gone, what do they do? Well, just like the children of Israel in the book of Judges, they kind of go back to, to doing evil, to doing the things that they did before. They go back to the flesh nature, allowing the self-life to rule over them. And so we need to, to learn the lessons here of Scripture is that, man, we need Jesus. Jesus every day. We need to make Jesus the primary passion of our lives. We need to be those that are, are pursuing godly character. And, 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 and that can only happen if we've had a true conversion experience. And that can only happen if the message of God's truth is presented to you and to me. And, and, and Romans chapter 10 talks about that. How are they going to hear if no one goes and preaches? And how are they going to preach if they're not sent? And guys, that's why we need spirit-filled believers in the church. That's why we need you guys to be filled with the Spirit of God because He wants to utilize you just like He's using Gideon in Judges chapter 6 to get out there and to share the message of, of God's truth and love so that, they, that the people have a chance to hear the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Hey, you don't have to worry about that. You just... Get the message out. God will take care of the rest. 
It's His power unto salvation, the Bible tells us. But because of the Israelites' persistence in sin, we see God delivered them up again, this time to the hand of Midian, and also the Amalekites and these others from the east. And, and it says there in verses in, in, in verse two that it was for seven or I'm sorry, verse one, seven years, these enemies. They came in and invaded Israel. They crossed the Jordan River and they would sweep through the land. They would just kind of nomad, you know, campsite along the, throughout the Jezreel Valley, raiding and destroying the produce of the land, kind of like locusts. And they were stripping the land of everything good. And after seven years of this kind of invasion, the text tells us Israel is impoverished. They've been wiped out. They've been forced up into the hills to live in caves and in the dens. Now think about that, guys. What if you and your family had to live like this? What if you and your family, you know, you you go to Walmart and the shelves are swept clean, you know? It's like, what? You go to the produce section. What? Where'd all the produce go, you know? It's gone, man. Invading armies have come in. They've, they've wiped it out. And, and so there's no, no, no food at Walmart, so you go to your survival garden at home, right? You, you go to the squash pen, and you're looking for the squash and, you know, the raised garden bed. And where's, where's the squash, guys? It's gone. It's been raided. It's been taken. And you've got nothing left. And not only that, you've got barbarians. You've got pirates, you know, wanting to, to, to crash at your place. And, to, you know, they want your stuff. In fact, they've already carried off your TV and everything else uh, that, that was in your house. And so you're forced to kind of find a safe place to live with you and your family, you and your kids. It would be crazy. It would be ridiculously hard. You would watch your hard work and, 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 and everything that you'd worked for just get taken right from underneath you and perhaps burned or destroyed. So it's tough times. But listen... There's a reason for these tough times. The Bible tells us there's a reason behind this. And that reason is is that these people had forsaken their first love. (laughs) You see, the covenant, the the Israelites were in a covenant with God. And their God is our God. He's a jealous God. He doesn't allow His people to get away with it. Hey, if you enter into a covenant of faith with God, He takes that seriously. He takes that very seriously. These people are his covenant people. He's not going to let them go without an attempt to turn their hearts to him. And so it is, guys, that here in these first six verses, we see even an enemy army and their invasion can be a form of judgment, which God had already warned his people about in in the book of Deuteronomy. He'd warned his people, listen, guys, if you turn away and you go after these foreign gods, (laughs) I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you, and I'm going to remove the blessings in order to turn your hearts back to me. And that's what happens in our lives as well. You know, the application there is, is, is simple to see. Guys, when we forsake the Lord, when we forsake the truth of God and living for Him, guys, we're going we're gonna to see the blessings in life being diminished. Just because being with God is a blessing. <laughs> that in and of itself is a blessing. And so you're going to lose that big blessing, the biggest blessing of all, just the presence of the Lord in your life and his help and all the ways that he assists us that, that sometimes you don't even know about and you don't even see. 
We come now to the next section of the chapter there, and, and this is verses 7 through 10, and I've titled this, this point, God's Message, okay? This is God's message for the Israelites. It says, it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Did you know this is the only other prophet in the whole book of Judges besides Deborah? Deborah was a prophetess. She had the gift of prophecy. And God used her as a prophet amongst the people. But this is the other prophet. We don't know his name. He's just some dude. I love this. I love this. He's just some dude that loved God and was sensitive to the Spirit and showed up to give the message. Now, you know what? This is hard to do. (laughs) This is not easy to do. But I love that this guy is, he's here. I love that he's here and he's willing to share the truth. Now, why would God send a prophet when the people needed a deliverer? That's a question that's been asked about this, this, this part here. Isn't this kind of a cruel kind of gesture on God's part that, that he would just kind of send somebody with a message instead of sending an actual deliverer? The people are, the people are impoverished. The people are crying out. They're miserable. Why would God send a messenger with a message? You know, that would be kind of like you breaking down on 82 and calling for a tow truck. And instead, they send you out a guy who gives your car a good washing, you know. Let me wash your car for you. I don't need a car wash. I need a tow truck. I need to get my car to the shop so I can get it repaired. But this is where we have to realize something about God. God's ways are not our ways. And we often want the problem to be solved immediately. We pray, Lord, fix this. Take care of this, God. And then we want that to happen. You know, like he's a genie in a bottle. You know, just going to show up and clear it all up for us. We have to realize that sometimes God knows that what we really need is a clear message. That to fix our problem would be to take us from point A to to point B without fashioning and forming our character first. Without causing us to go through the things that we need to go through in order to have our understanding grow, that our wisdom might grow. You see, God often uses His Word to prick our hearts and to open our eyes. And we don't often like it. We don't like it. The truth hurts, doesn't it? There's a reason I said prick your hearts. The Word of God often pricks our hearts and it it can hurt. And it causes us to open our eyes to things that we didn't see. You know, if all, he, if all God ever did was just do what we wanted and we never experienced pain, we never went through suffering, we never faced consequences for our sin, then we wouldn't really be able to love God deeply. We wouldn't know deep love. We wouldn't know true virtue and have mature characters, character quality built into us. We wouldn't understand how terrible sin is or how great God's grace is. And so God, in his wisdom, sends the Israelites a prophet to declare his word to the people. 
so that they would grow in their understanding and be able to respond to God out of love. Let's break down this prophet's message. There's an introduction. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. There's a main point. It's all about God's grace. The main point here is God's grace. He's delivered you from Egypt. He's delivered you from bondage. He's delivered you from oppression. And then he fought for you and gave you a great place to dwell. He made a place for you. He gave you this promised land. So it's all about God's grace. That's, that's purely God's grace, guys. You know what? It's God's grace that you're here tonight, that you're alive. It's God's grace that you're breathing in God's air. It's God's grace that he's planted you in Paris, Texas, where you can flourish and blossom and bloom in the place that he has planted you and me. It's God's grace. You know, I don't think we give God enough credit for all that he does for us. You know, there's, there, the Bible uh, talks about or refers to what is known as common grace. And that is just God's goodwill towards mankind in general. God created the earth. He created human beings and he put us here because he loves us and he wants to see us flourish. And there's a lot of grace there. But there's more than that. God has also delivered us from the bondage of Egypt, the world system. He's given us salvation in Christ Jesus. And on top of Christ, He's given us the Holy Spirit. And on top of the Holy Spirit, He's given us so many heavenly blessings that there's too many to count. And it's a wonderful thing when you realize God's grace. The third point of this prophet's message is God's command. He tells them they are to worship God. The one true living God, not the false gods of the Canaanites. He says, don't fear the gods of the Amorites. That word fear being, don't offer reverence to them. Don't bow down before them. Don't be worshiping them. That's God's command. That was, that was the stipulation of the covenant. God created this covenant and he said, here, here it is, guys. Go into the land. Enjoy it. You're going to have it all. But just don't worship these false gods. And, 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 and then he says there the, the very last part of the message. And this is where it gets painful. This is where it hurts. This is where the finger of God is going to zero in and put it right on the issue at hand. And he says to them, you have not obeyed my voice. You know, it's that message of God that is so difficult to hear, isn't it, in our lives when God zeroes in on us and, and has to tell us, listen, you've not obeyed my voice. You're facing, these, you're facing these situations. You're facing these consequences because you have chosen to go down a path that I did not call you to go down. I didn't ask you to go down this path. And yet you chose to do this. And, and this is, you know, you're going to have to face this. You've not obeyed my voice. Now I'm here. I'm with you. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm going to walk you through this. But you've got to face this. You know what? After this message... You and I, we might expect that God would now assign a punishment or judgment at this point. Listen, guys, you, you walked away. You're worshiping these other gods. Now, here's, here's what's going to happen. But listen, the message just ends right there. And, and, and I, I want to point that out. This is another example here of God being long-suffering, of God having a patient love. You see, he ends the message right here because he's just warning them. He's, he's, he's giving them a message of truth in order to call to them, in order to warn them, in order to wake them up, in order to turn them back to Him. And yet, here is a, another instance of God's grace, God's patience, God's love. 
You know, our God is so gracious to you and to me as well, isn't he? You know, I look at my life, and, and I can tell you guys, I deserve to be judged. <laughs> I deserve that, that God would judge my life and, and punish me for the sins that I've committed. I know I'm a, I'm a rotten guy. You know, if, if, if my heart could be, you know, displayed in a book or something before you guys, man, I'd be embarrassed. I'd be scared. Because I know I'm a sinner. I know what I deserve. But God doesn't do that to me. He doesn't do that to you. You see, God sends us loving messages instead. God sends us truth. God sends us Bible verses. God sends us brothers and sisters, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas. Sometimes he speaks to us through the voice of a child. But God so graciously comes and he warns, and he speaks, and he gives us another opportunity to confess and to repent and to turn back to him. And that's what he wants. That's what he wants from us. You see, he's the one who gives us an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ is our advocate. Jesus Christ is our defender. He's our lawyer. We've got a great lawyer. We've got the best lawyer in the world, guys. And Jesus says, come to me. Come boldly. Come with boldness to the throne of grace in your time of need because I'm ready to represent you before the Father. I'm ready, I'm ready to give you grace. And I love that. I love that about our Lord. He stops his message short of calling down judgment on these people and instead he's pricking their hearts with the truth and opening their eyes to his love. Now, are you listening tonight? Are you hearing this tonight? Are you seeing And are you receiving God's word into your heart? I hope so, because God loves you and he desires the best for you. And we're going to see that as we continue now to the next section of Judges chapter 6, verses 11 to 24. And I've titled this, God's Choice. God's Choice. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Notice there in verse 11 that the A on angel uh, angel of the Lord, that's a title. It's capitalized. It should be capitalized. Uh, In the New King James Version it is. That's because the translators have rightly understood that this is a theophany. Or more accurately, a Christophany. That simply means an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So, now, uh, some people are confused. They think, well, I thought God was spirit. How could, you know, God appear? You know, before Jesus Christ became a man, how could God appear to somebody in in this human form or as as an angel here? Well, listen, uh, theologians believe that this was basically God was projecting himself as an image of an angel here. Jesus appearing in the form of an angel as it was seen through the eyes of a man. But, in fact, was not really an angel. Was not really there. Because God, we know, is spirit. He's not a man like you and me. And so before Jesus Christ was incarnated and took the form of a human being, he appears from time to time in the Old Testament. And and this is an image that was projected basically in the brain of Gideon. Basically, he's able to see this and he thinks this is real. But in reality, this is God just showing up and doing a miracle. 
and, and basically creating this appearance and, and, and talking here with Gideon. Now, I want to also point out to you guys, notice here in these verses, in this verse, that Gideon is threshing wheat. So he had a little bit of wheat that he had grown, and he had harvested it, and he's threshing this wheat, but notice where he's threshing it. He's threshing it in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. Now, this is not right. Usually, wheat would be threshed on a hilltop. You go to the top of the hill, you throw that those stalks of grain in the air, and the, the grain would separate from the chaff, and it would fall to the ground, and the chaff would blow to the side there on that hilltop. A wine press is down in a depression area, type area, to catch the, the crushed grapes and the juice. And so this was a totally not orthodox way of threshing wheat. But he's doing that, of course, because he doesn't have freedom. He's not free to thresh the wheat on the hilltop. He knows that if he does that, he's in risk and danger of the Midianite hordes seeing it and coming and taking and stealing it. So he's hiding away, threshing wheat. In verse 12, we pick it up. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. What a priceless moment. I love this verse. If you highlight things in your Bible, highlight this verse. You know, Jesus comes and he sees Gideon here through the eyes of faith. He sees his potential, doesn't he? <laughs> he? He looks at Gideon. Here's Gideon. He's threshing wheat in a wine press, you know, scared and hiding away. And the Lord shows up and says, hey, how's it going, mighty man of valor? <laughs> the Lord's with you. He chooses to look at Gideon for what he is in God's sight. And that's a mighty warrior, a mighty man of valor. Guys, did you know that if you're here in Christ tonight, if, you're, if your life is hidden in Christ because of your faith in Him, God sees you through the eyes of faith. And I'm not saying that God has faith, but He sees you, He sees because of your faith in Christ, He sees you as precious in God's sight. He sees you tonight as justified, just as if you'd never sinned. And He sees you already for what you will be one day. You're here tonight just like me. We're in a practical battle with our flesh. We're, we're wrestling with temptation. We wrestle against sin. Of course, we all are in that camp together. But guess what? God looks at us and he says, hey, you're a victorious warrior. You're a mighty man. You're a mighty woman of valor. Because I see you, not for what you're struggling with and right now, not for the errors that you're committing and the failures you're having, the mistakes you make and the sin you commit. I don't see you in that sense. I come and I see you as a mighty man, a mighty woman of valor, just like Gideon here. He doesn't see you as a coward. He doesn't see you as weak. He knows you for what you are in Christ. And you in Christ, the Bible tells us, are more than a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. You're a victorious warrior in Christ Jesus. Gideon, however, who doesn't know the Lord yet, so he asks a question that we've probably all asked before in verse 13. He says, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Can I just tell you guys, this is how an immature Christian talks. This is how somebody that doesn't know the Lord talks. And this is sometimes how mature Christians who are very hurt, talk to the Lord. But all of that said, 
this comes, this comes from a, an emotional outburst. <laughs> and, and aren't you glad that the Lord allows us to have emotional outbursts at time? He allows us to, to ask these questions. But you know what the reality is, 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 is I found is the longer I walk with the Lord in my life, the better I get to know Him, the less of these kind of emotional outbursts I have. Because you know what? I, I just realized something. God's got it. God is in control. God is powerful. He is able to do things that I don't even see. And you know what? I've seen the Lord show up so many times now in my life that I don't even doubt anymore that He's, that he's not I know He's with me. And I know He's working. And, and I just have to wait and to see how He's going to work things out. But these kind of questions have become less in my life as I grow closer to the Lord, as I walk with Him longer, because I know He's with me. And I know he's working on my behalf. But sometimes we need to be reminded of the truth. That is, that, that we don't have a God who changes. It, it, it's, he's not the one who changes, but rather it's our hearts that change. You know, if there's a problem, it's usually, I, I shouldn't say usually, I should say it's always with us. It's always with us. It's not with the Lord. And yet here God graciously understands that we're going to have to put this question to him from time to time. We might ask him, Lord, if you're with us, where's your miracles? Lord, if, you're, if, if I'm yours, how come you're not showing up on my behalf? Why can't you get me out of this suffering circumstance that I'm in, we might ask. But God apparently chooses to avoid this question. <laughs> Don't you love it? <laughs> he just moves on. Verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? God's kind of like, you know what? I'm not even going to go there, Gideon. (laughs) I'm not even going to get into all the things that I've been doing for you your whole life to bring you to this moment. I'm just going to move on. I'm just going to say, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel. Verse 15, he tells him in verse 15, so he said to him, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Isn't God's perspective so different from Gideon's? God's like, hey, you're a mighty man of valor. I'm sending you to save Israel. Get going. And Gideon's like, what are you talking about, Lord? I, I come from the, you know, the, the smallest clan, the weakest clan, and, and I myself, I'm the least of my father's house. You know what? I believe that's precisely because Gideon knew he was from a weak clan and that he was least in his father's house. That is that God chose him. That's the way God loves to work. <laughs> Gideon wouldn't think of himself more highly than he should. Gideon wouldn't go around claiming the credit. Gideon wouldn't walk around saying, see, you know, God knew we were the best tribe. God knew my family was the strongest family. No, God shows up and he picks somebody who is not going to think that way. That's the way the Lord works, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you'll flip over to 1 Corinthians with me tonight and look at verse uh, 26 to 29 of chapter 1. We see how God works in these kinds of situations. (laughs) He doesn't share his glory with any man. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. It says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. And then skip down there to 31. It says that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You see, the Lord has a way of doing things to where you and I don't get to boast about it. If Gideon was going to boast, he would have to, it would have to be about God. If Gideon was going to say, hey, the Lord is, or, or I saved Israel, he'd just have to say, no, the Lord did it with, or through me. Now, in the same way, if you and I have anything to glory about, it's going to be about the mighty power of God. You can't do anything to add to God's gift of salvation. You can't be a good person and get into heaven on your own merit. You can, you can strive all your life, but you'll never be good enough. You have to recognize and realize that it's Jesus Christ's merit. It's Jesus Christ's goodness. It's his life as, that you are trusting in that gives you life. And that's what God does. That's the way he works. Verse 16, it says, And the Lord said to him, or going back to Judges chapter 6 now, continuing there, And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Verse 17, Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them, back, brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. Isn't it cool here that the angel of the Lord kind of waited for Gideon to prepare this whole meal? You know, I mean, it would take a while to go find a, a goat and kill it, skin it, you know, I mean, and, you know, prepare it then barbecue it or whatever you're going to do with it, and then, and then make some broth and some bread. I mean, this was been a few hours here, and, and the Lord's just hanging out under the terebinth tree, patiently waiting. I love it. And then he doesn't even eat it. It's even better. Check it out, verse 20. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And so he did. And then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was, that he was the angel of the Lord. And so Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abiezrites to the day that this, this scripture was written, that is. I want to pause right here. So this Christophany ends when the angel of the Lord suddenly just disappears. Poof! You know, he touches the rock and, and fire comes out of the rock and consumes the meat, consumes everything that was laid out there, the bread. And, and then, poof, this, this angel is gone. The angel of the Lord, he's gone. And, and Gideon realizes, oh my goodness, <laughs> I'm going to die. I've just seen God face to face, and I'm going to die. Why did he think this? Well, because 
you know, the Lord had revealed that no one could see him and live. And, and, and that was just something, and, and not only that, it was also because of the, the, the great fear that Gideon had in the presence of the Lord. Sometimes, guys, we as Christians, we get too used to the New Testament Christianity, I think. And we all think that we're entitled to this lovey-dovey relationship with Jesus. And Jesus is everybody's pal, you know. You see the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt, you know. And we all think that Jesus is just cool with everything we do. But we need to realize that, the, that, that Jesus is God. And here, even though Gideon sees him, he's afraid he's going to die because he's seen the holy and the living and the fearful God. Fearful God. And he's afraid that he's going to be consumed and die. Why does he think this? Well, because he was in the presence. There's this moment of reality, this moment of the gravity of being a sinful human being in the sight of a holy God. And guys, we have to realize that God is not just, you know, you know, Jesus came to show us the Father, yes. But Jesus is still God. Jesus is still holy. Jesus is still the, uh, the, a, a, a righteous judge. And we have to remember that about our God. You know, I love how in C.S. Lewis's books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he presents the type of Jesus Christ as a lion, doesn't he? And that lion, if you've ever read those books, that lion is a scary lion. He's not a tame lion. And, and whenever he comes around, there's this sense of awe, there's this sense of woe, you know. And yes, the lion sometimes allows, you know, Lucy and the kids to touch and to pet his mane. But there are other times when they don't even want to go near him because they see he's, he's powerful, he's righteous, he's holy. And we have to remember that, and that's what Gideon had seen. And he's realizing, I'm a sinful human being, I'm going to die. But God reassures him there that he will, he's not going to die. He's not going to die. Again, God's grace. It's God's grace. We come now to the, third, or the fourth point tonight, and we're getting close to finishing this up, but this is God's demand. God's demand. In verse 25, we begin. It says, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. Let's pause right here for a minute. First of all, isn't it interesting? God finds a guy who's, uh, you know, living in the house of somebody that has a full-on altar to Baal. I mean, I love it. I love it. God, (laughs) there's there's no limitations or borders that he can't cross. You know, maybe someone's here tonight and you're living in a household that does not serve the Lord. Maybe you come from a household where your mom and dad don't serve the Lord. Well, guess what? God wants to use you in that family to do great and mighty things. He wants to use you to be a light that shares the good news of Jesus Christ that is unto salvation in that household. And, and just as he reached Gideon, he can reach you. But why did the altar of Baal have to be torn down? Why is that the first thing that, that the angel of the Lord tells him to do? I'll tell you why. It's because the altar of the Lord was going to be built in that house. And listen, you can't serve two masters. 
where the altar of God is, you cannot also have an altar to a false god. You see, God does not call us to make a covenant of double-mindedness. He calls us to single-mindedness, a singular love for God, a love and worship of Him in our lives. God's demand to get in here is meant to serve us as an example for the rest of all of Israel. It was meant to be a paradigm. What they did, what Gideon did to this altar was supposed to happen in all of Israel. You see, before God can deliver his people, you have to make a commitment to trust and to follow him. You have to tear down the altar of Baal in your life and prepare to build the altar to the Lord. You know, when I was a boy of about nine years old or so, I remember having a bike race with several of my friends and with my sister. You see, we lived out in the country in rural northern Nevada, and our house was surrounded by dirt roads, and so we were racing down this particular gravel road, a big group of us, and you know how those races can get. They're, they're kind of scary. But as, as we were getting into it, I was getting closer to the mark, you know, where we had set as the finish line, and I looked over, and I saw it was just me and my sister, and I laughed to myself. I thought, ha I'm going to win this race, you know. I've beat my sister several times, you know. So, you know, I got up on my little pedals and started going. And I hit a patch of loose gravel. And I did the little speed wobble thing. And I wiped out, man. And I ate it, you know, slid on my knees and everything. And, and to make even matters worse, as I looked up, there went my sister. And she couldn't move. She rode right over the top of me and crossed the finish line, you know, just laughing, you know. And as I got up and I was, hit, I was looking at my knees and I didn't have any skin left on my knees. It was just completely gone. And it was just blood just running down my legs. And so I went, you know, to the house and I was like, Mom, you know, fix me up. I, I tore the, you know, I fell off my bike and I'm crying. You know, it was painful. And I'll never forget, you know, she didn't just walk over and grab a Band-Aid and stick it on there. You know, there you go, Phil. You'll be all right. No, she made me get in the bath. I had to get in a hot bath. And I had to scrub the skin all around my knee to get the little tiny pebbles that were bedded in my skin out of there. And why did I have to do that? It was to get rid of any chance of an infection so that the wound wouldn't fester and become worse than it already was. To say that it was painful, that's an understatement, guys. I was screaming. But what's the point of that story? My point is that you can't put a Band-Aid on your knees after a fall like that. You have to clean it out first. And it's the same way that God works too in our hearts. He can't just slap a Band-Aid on Israel's heart here and say, all right, we're good. He's got to deal with the issues that were inside of their hearts. And so this altar has to be cut down. It has to be destroyed. It has to be completely cleaned up. Think about it. There was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus Christ and he said to him, hey, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Now, if that would have happened to me or in anybody here in our modern day, we'd be like, what? Oh, you want to go to heaven? Well, just take this card and fill it out and check the box right here. You receive Jesus, you know? Just say this prayer. Just say the prayer and you're going to heaven. But with God, that's not what he does. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't say, just repeat this prayer after me and fill out the decision card, and then Peter will give you a call and follow up on you and make sure you get plugged into church. It wasn't like that. Jesus gave him a message of truth in that moment. He called him out on his idol, on the riches that were in his life. And then he sent him away to choose on his own between either God or his material wealth. 
Because that's what God does. God gave him a message of truth. And then after that, he left it up to that young man to make up his mind. You know, that's what God does with you and with me as well. He gives you the truth, and it hurts. It hurts. But he does it out of love in order to clean out the wounds, in order to keep you from getting infected, and to bring complete healing to your life. God wants to do a complete work. He doesn't want to brush over your sin and just say, oh, it never happened. Oh, it's okay if you feel that way about yourself. We'll still get you into heaven. No. You go and you deal with the idols and you cut them down and you clean them up and then you come. No, and, and, and I want to make sure, I want to make this clear first before I say, before I confuse somebody. It's not about works. It's not about you getting your life in order before you come to Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But God is not going to accept you in, with two masters. You can't serve two masters. So all God is saying is you've got to make up your mind. Once you make up your mind that God's your God, oh man, he's never going to let you go. He's not going to let you get out of that covenant because he loves you so much. He's just waiting for you to declare, look, my allegiance, my loyalty, it's to you, God. I'm not going to trust in myself. I'm not going to trust in this religion or in that thing. I'm trusting in you. Verse 27 So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down. And the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, who's done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he's torn down the altar of Baal, and because he's cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is God, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. And therefore, on that day, he called him Jeroboam, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. So there, you know, Gideon goes on a clandestine night mission and tears down the altar and chops it up, you know, and everybody wakes up in the morning and they just see the second bull's already been offered as a sacrifice. And they're kind of, you know, sipping their warm goat's milk or whatever, going, What, what just happened, guys? And they, they go, let's do an investigation. They find out it's Gideon. And they say, get him out here. We're going to kill him. And Joash, Gideon's father, says some great words of wisdom. We've got to hand it to him here. He says some great words of wisdom. He says, you know what, guys? If Baal is really God, why don't we let him kill Gideon? You know? Let's just let, let this false God take care of the problem if he's really God. But listen, this whole ordeal, it reveals the absurdity of worshiping a false god. You can sense the satire in the way the writer expresses this story. He's saying, you know, what would you rather have, guys? A god who's invented by men and can't do anything? Or do you want the god who created us and has a plan to save us and wants a relationship with us? Who do you want? And that's the question, guys. Who do you want in your life? Do you want some false god that can't save you? Is that what you want to be trusting in? Or do you want a real God? The God who created you for a relationship with Him. 
Verse 33 comes to the last point of the chapter, and that is God's assurance. And then all the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abiezrites gathered behind him. Don't miss that important moment there in verse 34. That's a distinguishing mark that we see in the lives of all the judges. How that the Spirit of God comes upon them to empower them to serve God and to deliver the people. I think we talked about that before at Calvary Chapel. So we need to know about that. If you are going to serve the Lord, if you're going to be a victorious Christian, you're going to need the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had a different way of relating with people. He would come upon one person at a time, okay? And that was the way that he worked. Uh, In the New Testament, though, the Holy Spirit is given permission now to enter into all believing Christians. He indwells Christians, and he comes upon them. He baptizes them for service, okay? That's, That's a biblical concept. And, and, and here we see it in the Old Testament. Gideon, and, and that verse in the Hebrew language, it literally says that the Holy Spirit clothed himself with Gideon. I like that. What a beautiful way to put it. When God's Spirit comes upon us, it's more than just indwelling us. It's the idea of overflowing us and clothing us and, and, and acting through us, okay? I'm teaching so long the leaves are falling off the trees. I get the hint. Verse 35, I'm almost done. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. And when he arose the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. So God does a miracle. Just to show Gideon, I'm with you. I'm with you, buddy. I love that. That's God's assurance. Gideon had a weak faith. Or maybe a better word for it is cautious faith. He had a cautious faith. He was just not in a place where he knew the Lord well enough to move forward in this without some sort of assurance. Now, some people try to, you know, Talk about this as Gideon, you know, committing some sort of a sin to ask for fleece. He didn't do it in faith. You know, he he had a lack of faith in his life. But I don't see it as that. I I really think he's just being real here where he's at with the Lord. And and you know what? Besides that, look at the way the Lord responds. If he had sinned, I think the Lord would have told him. But the Lord just loves on Gideon. And, And I love that about this whole passage. It really shows us the love and the gentleness of our God. You know, our God is humble enough to stoop down to our level and to meet us where we're at sometimes. He doesn't do it all the time, but he does it sometimes. 
He doesn't mind meeting us where we are and strengthening us in our faith. And it's all about Gideon's heart here. Gideon isn't like in a spiteful way trying to test the Lord and go, well, Lord, if you're really God, then do this. No, that's not what Gideon's heart is. Gideon is very sincerely, genuinely asking God, I need some assurance that you're really with me, Lord. I'm about to go out on a battlefield in your name, and I need to know that you're with me, God. You know, I love his heart. I love his heart, actually, in that. And I also love the Lord's heart. Jesus said that a smoking flax he would not quench, nor a bruised reed would he break. Are you a smoking flax here tonight? Maybe that, that picture of a candle that's just got a little bit of a spark left on the tip of that wick and you're, it's been smoking and you're, you're in danger of being extinguished completely, that light for God. Know that Jesus is here tonight and he desires to minister to you. He desires, he desires to fan that spark into a flame. Are you a bruised reed here tonight that's been bent or possibly on the verge of being broken and something's happened in your heart, in your life, and you are hurting, know that Jesus is here tonight to comfort you, to surround you, to love on you. He is gentle and lowly, the Bible tells us. He's full of grace and patience towards us, and he sees us not for how we see ourselves. He never sees us that way. He sees us through the eyes of faith. Your faith in him qualifies you as a mighty, victorious warrior. You are a victorious and glorified son or daughter. Don't don't be afraid of not making it. He's going to make sure you do make it. Don't be afraid of, 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 of messing up. If you do mess up, you've got an advocate with the Father, and he invites you to come boldly to him. He says, hey, I love you, and I'm committed to you as long as it takes and whatever it takes. I'm going to get you there. And he's not afraid to give us assurance and to help us out when we need it. God shows up. He always does. He always will. So if that's true, if we are victorious sons and daughters of God, let's go live like that. Amen? Let's pray.